Welcome to another episode of Electable. I'm Deb Chubb. And today it's uh, it's all about abortion. And we are just very blessed to have with us Dr. Caitlin Bernard. Um, she has become famous in Indiana for being a compassionate abortion care physician. Um, she is technically an OBGYN and also certified as a complex family planning doctor. And I'll ask her to explain that as we go forward. Um, but we want to talk about um, abortion. And um, we know that when we're talking to people about abortion, um, we are faced with a, a barrage of ridiculous um, myths um, that have been uh, dreamt up by people who are um, opposed to women being treated as uh, full and equal citizens in uh, this state. And so we need to figure out how to combat all of those crazy myths. And so, um, so anyway, I want to introduce Dr. Caitlin Bernard. And uh, um, Doctor, can you please just tell us a little bit more about your position and what you do? Sure, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so I um, am an OBGYN, which means um, I um, did medical school and then residency in obstetrics and gynecology. Um, and then I um, did a subspecialty training in complex family planning, um, which focuses on um, as it says, complex um, abortion and contraception care. Um, and so, um, you know, primarily focused on taking care of um, people who have medical conditions or otherwise um, uh, complicated pregnancies um, that uh, may require abortion care, um, as well as um, contraception. So both the prevention um, and management of, of complicated pregnancies. Well, and I'm sure it is complicated. Um, pregnancy is... Uh a very complicated and um and so we know that you know you were you became famous um in particular for um this year for trying to make the public aware about the realities of abortion about the compassionate care that you provide um in helping a you know a 10 year old and so uh who was pregnant uh and so i i want to ask you um uh, and I know that I know, you know, we have talked and you have said, you know, there are lots of things that make pregnancy dangerous, not just being a 10 year old. But I wonder if you could speak to that just for a moment to say, you know, why is that particularly dangerous for um, for a 10 year old to carry a pregnancy to term and give birth? Yeah, so pregnancy in young people is always um, quite challenging, um, not just um, regarding kind of the circumstances of how they became pregnant, which obviously can be from abuse or rape, um, and, and the psychosocial factors and psychological factors that may result from that type of a trauma, um, but also, um, you know, the, the underdevelopment of their bodies and the difficulty that that poses to um, carrying a safe and healthy pregnancy, um, both for themselves and for the developing fetus. Um, certainly one of the biggest um, concerns that we um, uh, worry about in pregnancy is something called preeclampsia, which is much um, uh, more likely in someone who is so young and in their first pregnancy. Um, and that can cause, um, you know, multi-organ failure, uh, uh, you know, harm to both the kidneys, the liver, the heart, the lungs, the brain um, can result in stroke, seizures, um, and death. It's one of the most common um, 
causes of uh, maternal mortality, um, you know, throughout history, we have um, good ways to treat it now to prevent um, those severe complications. Um, but it often requires um, early delivery, which may be complicated, again, both for um, the pregnant person um, and the infant, um, especially when that occurs, um, you know, preterm um, with, you know, poor development of the fetus. Um, and then we, you know, look at certainly things like um, damage um, to the uterus and the pelvic floor um, and, the, you know, vagina, depending on the route of delivery. Definitely an increased risk for things like cesarean delivery, which, you know, can cause complications, things like bleeding, infection, and then, of course, long-term scarring of their uterus um, that will impact, you know, their um, potential pregnancies for the rest of their life. Um, and so you know, it's something that we take very seriously and, you know, definitely want to counsel everyone about what their risks are during a pregnancy um, in that circumstance or any other and make sure that they understand um, and can balance the risks and benefits for themselves to make a decision that's best for them and their families. So, well, it sounds, yeah, it sounds awful. And um, um, I know that, I mean, I've just, I've, I know that um, when talking about abortion, um, women have been faced with that myth that it's fine. It's fine to have a, a, a baby when you're 10 years old. Um, and of course, and you, you have mentioned earlier that there are many dangerous situations. Um, and, and we, I mean, we all know that um, carrying a pregnancy to term giving birth is more dangerous than having an abortion, uh, that that is um, a safer procedure. And that's correct. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, it's, um, one of those things that, you know, you can't really imagine because we see so many people, you know, having healthy pregnancies, having normal pregnancies, you know, delivering um, healthy babies. Um, but for those of us who work in this, um, you know, field all the time, we see lots of very difficult and tragic outcomes, um, including, you know, in, in Indiana, very high rates of maternal and infant mortality. Um, so this idea that there's always going to be a happy ending for everyone um, is just really not um, a reality for many different people. Um, and, you know, the the all of the complications that, it, that can occur, um, again, both for um, the mother means that you could have a 14 times increased risk of death with continuing a pregnancy compared to an abortion. Um, and, you know, and that those, you know, um, risk of death is um, a multitude of different factors related to, you know, how healthy they were coming into the pregnancy, what types of complications occur during the pregnancy, whether those are something that we could predict based on, you know, their previous health or something that happens completely spontaneously that we would never would have expected. Um, and so everyone has to, again, be able to, um, you know, have those choices, um, particularly when they are at higher risk, um, to be able to um, determine, you know, what is best for them and their families and abortion needs to be an option for them um, to prevent serious complications and death. Right. And and you had mentioned to me earlier um, that, um, you know, people in this kind of conversation that we're having all the time now um, have forgotten how uh, previous to the Dobbs decision and Indiana's um, ban on abortion, that there was, it was, access still was <laughs> Um, so, and, and I remember that, I mean, I remember there was a, just an entire laundry list of, of crazy um, laws that had been passed that restricted abortion in any number of ways. Um, and I, I fear the 
the law that was passed a few years ago, which seems innocuous on its face, saying that, um, you know, that a coercion um, is, I mean, it was already a crime to coerce somebody to have an abortion, but that doctors now had to ask um, patients um, whether they had been coerced. And um, we've seen in other states where the, um, you know, the courts and the state legislature has decided to change the definition. Um, and so I guess I, I worry that coercion in Indiana may become, you know, discussion. Uh, discussion about abortion um, may be considered a coercion. Um, have you in your in your practice like experienced that kind of worry that people are being coerced into abortion? And I'm just throwing these out there because these are the things that people are, you know, these are the kind of the myths that um, that we've been faced with. I would say, you know, um, this idea of coercion or pressure, um, you know, we we use the term reproductive coercion. So the most, you know, and this is something that has been studied um, for years, um, when we look at what is the most common way that women are, co are reproductively coerced, it's actually into becoming pregnant. So that's including things like contraceptive sabotage, where their partners, and these are often, you know, people who have a cycle of um, intimate partner violence, or psychological um, abuse already, um, will sabotage their use of contraception to force them to become pregnant, um, and then force them to carry the pregnancy in order to tie them to that person, and to, um, you know, prevent them from being able to escape um, that cycle of violence. So that's the most common cause of coercion. And, and the challenge with the law is that it doesn't address that type of coercion at all. It right. focuses instead on this much less likely um, um, part of coercion that is pushing somebody into having an abortion. But sure, absolutely, anybody can, you know, be in a cycle of violence um, with a partner or, you know, um, uh, have somebody who's not their partner and being, you know, pushed into making decisions um, uh, about their their pregnancy. And that's an important thing um, to identify, you know, to address, to work with the person to be able to get out of that cycle of violence. Um, so, you know, I, I think there's a myth that, you know, every person who comes in for an abortion, we're just like, okay, get on the table, we'll do your abortion. No, every single person has goes through a lengthy process of meeting with um, counselors, talking through their decision, um, making sure that this is the right decision for them, identifying any concerns for abuse or coercion. Um, you know, if they're, you know, um, not wanting to go through with the abortion, helping them to get resources to be able to safely and healthy, healthfully continue their pregnancy. Um, and that was happening before this law about you know, you have to call the police within four hours of identifying, you know, abortion, coercion, and et cetera. Um, so laws don't make the process of medical care better. We were already doing that um, type of, you know, close evaluation and interventions before any law law was was um, enacted. Wow. Yeah. And, and uh, any other, um, uh, you know, laws before uh, the total ban that were really um, impeding your really ability to provide compassionate care? Yeah, I mean, uh, lots of them, right? So we, you know, we in Indiana have essentially all of what we call trap laws, targeted restrictions of abortion providing laws. Um, the biggest one was that um, we were required to provide second trimester, so 14 weeks and above, um, abortions in an ambulatory surgical center. And there were no ambulatory surgical centers that were providing that care. So um, the only way that you could get an abortion after 14 weeks um, 
was to have it in a hospital and the hospitals have lots of policies about what, you know, what conditions they're able to provide abortion for. So we already had, you know, tens of thousands of people leaving the state every year to, um, you know, primarily go to Illinois to, to get abortion, necessary abortion care. And again, just thinking about who are those people who are able to get out of state, you know, there are people who have the funds, who have the, you know, parental support, who have the partner support, who have the, you know, childcare and ability to get time off of work. And for those who don't have that, that's not an option. They're never going to be able to get that care. Um, and they're going to be forced to continue pregnancies that are unsafe, um, unwanted, dangerous, traumatic, depending, you know, on their circumstances. Um, parental um, consent laws were also very challenging for minors to be able to get safe, um, legal abortion care. And, you know, as you um, we previously talked about there have been cases of people who have died of um, you know complications of abortion because they weren't able to tell their parents um, and they um, went out of state to to access abortion and so you know this isn't some abstract idea of you know oh this law you know maybe have these consequences no people are dying because of these laws and um, it's you know the idea that um, you know, the exceptions in our current ban are somehow going to prevent those, you know, people from dying is just not true. You know, there are people who have conditions that are not on the list. You know, as we were talking about, um, the ACLU is currently trying to petition um, the court to acknowledge that mental health is health, that mental health conditions do put people at risk in pregnancy um, and need to be um, considered as part of the exceptions at this point, you know, essentially, the you know state of Indiana, it, it, their you know formal policy is that mental health doesn't count um, for a complication in pregnancy, and that anybody who's had postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety, you know, um, you know schizophrenia, bipolar disorder knows that that is not true, um, and it's a it's a incredible shame that the state of Indiana is not supporting all of those Hoosiers with mental health conditions that may impact their pregnancies consider um uh substance um addiction a mental health um condition i mean i just know um, that yeah, that's, I mean, that's connected a lot to maternal mortality I mean, absolutely yeah so substance use disorder you know the vast majority of people who um have substance use um, disorders or substance abuse also have mental health conditions that's what we call a dual diagnosis often they're um you know, it's a way to self-medicate, right? It's a it's a way to deal with the trauma that they've been through. Now, whether they have a formal diagnosis of that or not, um, yeah, absolutely, it is it is um, incredibly difficult to separate those two issues. And yes, that is a, one of the main causes of maternal mortality um, in this state. And again, until we're able to, you know, provide all of the care that someone needs to be able to address those conditions in pregnancy um, and before pregnancy, ideally, um, we're not going to make um, a, a significant impact on our maternal mortality rate. Right, right. So um, now I have to ask you, um, you know, you are such an incredibly smart and, you know, knowledgeable physician on all of these matters. And I, I have to ask you, know, how does it feel suddenly to be kind of a political football? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, it feels bad, I guess is the oh. short answer. You know, this is not something, um, I don't consider any of this to be political, right? You know, that is the furthest from what we think um, abortion care and medical care should be. We believe that it's a human right. Um, it, in fact, 
um, it is a human right. I, I don't have to believe it or not believe it. Um, you know, people say, oh, I don't believe in abortion. It is. Whether you believe it or not, it is. Abortion care and health care are human rights. And so there should be nothing political. This shouldn't have anything to do with size or colors or political parties. This should be something that we all um, agree is the right thing to do for people in this country, for people in our state. Um, and the fact that it has become political and that it's become controversial and that I have, you know, been in the middle of that is... Um, is really just a disservice to our fellow human beings. Um, and it really um, detracts from uh, you know, our healthy um, community and takes time and energy to fight for something that we shouldn't have to fight for in the future. I often say like, I can't even imagine how much we could get done. We could literally be you know, curing cancer if we didn't have to spend so much time and energy on just fighting for some basic human right that is um, actually you know, quite um, simple and safe and easy to provide. Um, and yet, um, you know, um, we're wasting all of these taxpayer dollars, you know, and um, time and energy on something. Um, but if there's, you know, if that's what needs to be done, then I'm certainly willing to do so because I believe um, that we all have a responsibility to to work as hard as we can to um, ensure those human rights for our fellow um, fellow humans. You are incredible. I, it's wonderful. I mean, it's just wonderful to talk to you and everything. And I want to ask you too um, about, um, you know, some of the other myths that are out there. And it really uh, are often, and you will hear politicians uh, say it all the time, you know, that women want to have an abortion up until birth. <laughs> and I mean, that just, I mean, I'm sure that just strikes you as the most ridiculously stupid thing you've ever heard. But I mean, can you, I mean, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, abortions that occur a little later in pregnancy? I mean, um, well, I'll just let you, you describe it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, abortion later in pregnancy um, can be a difficult thing for people to understand until they're faced with it, right? Nobody ever would expect for that to happen, right? This is not some, um, an unwanted pregnancy <clears throat> that you, you know, decide um, about later in pregnancy, these are people who have incredibly, um, you know, horrible, um, difficult decisions to make, um, and often faced with the, you know, worst situation that they could ever imagine the worst experience of their life, which is that their, you know, baby um, has been diagnosed with um, something that it will make their life incredibly difficult, or um, that they will inevitably die of um, either, later in the pregnancy or soon after delivery or, you know, some um, genetic conditions, you know, um, have a horrible um, infancy um, and die, you know, within the first years of life. Um, these are people who desperately want to be parents and are doing the best that they can in an incredibly difficult situation to be parents, to to make the best choice for, for their um, baby that they can. Um, and, you know, the way that our culture and society, instead of supporting um, them, instead of being compassionate um, and understanding how difficult that, that is, they're vilifying them. And the physicians who are doing everything that they can to support them and ensure that they have, um, you know, the ability to to have an abortion later in pregnancy, it's, it's really incredibly tragic and, you know, one of the most misunderstood um, 
areas of medicine. Um, and, you know, again, you just can't imagine until you're in that situation. And I can't tell you how many patients I've had who said, I never would have thought I would have an abortion. I, you know, I couldn't imagine this. And now here I am. And, um, and I know that this is what I need to do. And, and thank you for being there. Um, and, you know, there, there's lots of, you know, if you just, you know, look um, at, you know, stories online, there's lots of people who have spoken out about um, their experience with this. And there's, you know, if someone is willing to really take the time to understand, then it will be very clear that this is something that we need to be able to preserve for them. So uh, tell me how that, you know, those experiences, you know, fit with the new ban. I mean, um, it's, you know, so an, an abortion is allowed um, under the circumstance of uh, a threat of fatal fetal anomaly. Um, and I don't know, does that work in medicine? I mean, how do those words work in your practice? Yeah, you know, I think um, in some cases are very straightforward that there is, you know, no question um, that this is a fatal or lethal fetal anomaly. Um, things like anencephaly, where the head and the brain don't develop. Um, and then there are things that are much more complicated. It's really difficult to predict, um, you know, um, how severe a brain defect is, how severe a heart defect is, you know, um, what the what the course uh, of the outcomes would be. And so we work, you know, closely as a team with my maternal fetal medicine, high risk obstetrics um, team, sometimes neonatologists or other pediatric specialists who have seen these types of conditions and know the outcomes. Um, and we do the best that we can to, um, to um, make that determination for patients. But of course, I have lots of patients who have, you know, really severe fetal anomalies that, um, you know, for whatever reason, we, we can't be sure that it's a lethal fetal anomaly, and they're referred out of state. Um, and they have to, in the worst, darkest days of their um, life be essentially thrown out of their home state, um, pushed, you know, somewhere else to be taken care of somewhere else to travel away from their home, away from their family. It's absolutely devastating. Yeah. I mean, I'm so sorry. I know this is so, I mean, this is just like cuts to your core. Um, this is, you know, you believe in this kind of care so deeply. Um, so and I um, and, and of course, the other issue that we have to hit on is miscarriage. Um, you know, um, miscarriage is kind of equal to abortion. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think medically That's speaking, right. it is the same thing. And right. um, and I think and I think the figure is right. Correct me, of course, if I'm wrong, is that 25 percent of pregnancies end in miscarriage. And and so that's so that's automatically 25 percent of pregnancies that are aborted. Um, yeah. And that, um, you know, and that just um, uh, an abortion in terms of a pregnancy that's failing and is, you know, being expelled naturally um, isn't adequate for a woman's continued health. Um, she does have to be seen and um, and she does have to be, you know, get some care um, so that she can go on and, and be healthy. And so I guess, you know, I mean, that's another area where when you, you know, Cross the line of the law, um, you know, you have, how does, you know, how do you juxtapose or reconcile those two things? Yeah, I mean, you know, many people having miscarriage care do need um, to be seen, do need um, 
you know, evaluation and management, whether that's with medication, for example, mifepristone, you know, that's, you know, that huge, um, uh, you know, all the court cases related to mifepristone, it, again, is incredibly sad that we're trying to restrict a medication that's used um, often for people having miscarriage. Um, and so that's one, you know, way that restrictions on abortion care do impact miscarriage care. Um, another is that in order to be adequately trained in how to provide um, miscarriage management safely, particularly more complex cases, particularly those in the second trimester, you need to be trained in those procedures. And when we are unable to um, you know, provide training um, for um, abortion procedures, which, as you mentioned, are exactly the same as those for miscarriage care. Um, then the physicians that we're training here in Indiana and that are coming um, to practice here are unable to provide that care. You know, I, as a complex family planning specialist, one of two in the entire state, um, get referrals from all over the state for patients having miscarriages um, and stillbirths in the second trimester. Um, we have patients who are, um, you know, completely mismanaged in that care at other hospitals and have significant complications because of those referred to us here. Um, and it, you know, the reason for that is that they're not, you know, getting the training and the care that they need because everyone is afraid um, to provide training in abortion care and, um, and, 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 and the workforce is unprepared to be able to to translate that same those same procedures for miscarriage care, it's incredibly sad. Wow. Yeah. All right. Well, this is a horrible state, um, in all the in all the translations of the word state. <laughs> well, we I like to think of it more as um, an opportunity. You know, I think we have a lot of work to do, and I can only hope that those who you know, are willing and want to, you know, continue to improve the care that we provide here, um, are motivated and willing to do so, and that we can, um, you know, work together to, to make it a better place. That is such a great hopeful, a hopeful outlook. And, and, um, and I too, I mean, I, I approach this topic as not really in a medical way, but really in a human rights um, uh, and human rights approach. Um, you know, women are, you know, human beings, and as such, you know, have the right to control their bodies and their medical decisions. And so, um, and so, you know, the medical parts are difficult, um, and we do need to understand them um, because we are in this fight. But that is not really the main point, is it? The, the, point, the main point is that you know, women are just humans. They should be treated as full and equal citizens with all the rights guaranteed in our state and and federal constitutions uh, that, that I think, given. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other part is, you know, we don't nitpick, you know, what type of procedure somebody uses um, for cancer care. We don't, you know, say, oh, a, a medicine that's being used for, you know, diabetes treatment shouldn't be allowed, um, you know, just like any other medical care, we trust that a person and their physician and their family can make those decisions together and they don't need legal um, intervention in, you know, in that decision making process that prevents them from getting the care that they need. And so why, um, why would, you know, um, women's care be any different than that? And yet here we are um, in, in, a, in a very difficult position for many women because of because of those restrictions. Right, I mean, and as you say, you know, I mean, if someone um, decides uh, that there's a cancer treatment out there um, that 
it could save them, but they don't want to take it, and it means they might die. Well, that's their choice. Um, but somehow this is uh, different. Somehow women are not given that choice in this situation. That's so, right. so anyway, and I can't, you know, I just can't thank you enough for all you have done. Um, I think, you know, um, most of us in Indiana know about the controversy um, concerning your torchbearer award that was secretly and strangely um, taken away by, you know, uh, you know, I'm sure at the hands of the evil uh, Tad Rokita, um, you know, our clown attorney general. Uh, in Indiana. And I just, you know, I just, I, I'm just, I'm glad that you are getting the recognition that you deserve. Um, I don't, um, I, it, it is ridiculous that, you know, that you would be um, publicized in a, in a negative way for all that you do. And I'm so happy that we're able to recognize you um, among many, many, many important people um, um, for the good you do, for all the good you Thank do you. and how much you care. Thank you. I appreciate that a lot. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for, for, you know, taking the time out of your busy day. I know you're super busy sure. and I really appreciate you giving me a moment to talk about all this, but um, you know, no. it's difficult stuff, but we just have to talk about it. We have to keep talking about it. No, I appreciate it. And I appreciate the work that you're doing, not just to get women elected, but also to have these difficult conversations throughout the state to help people understand why this is so important. And, you know, again, just uh, on the, you know, back of Ohio's victory in terms of, um, uh, you know, the people of the state voting to preserve this care for the people in their state. I think that that is exactly what would happen here in Indiana if we had the ability to have a referendum. And it just speaks to um, the importance of continuing to have these conversations and to um, make change in our state. Yes, I agree so much um, that, yes, if if all um, Hoosiers could vote um, on this, I think we would vote the right way. I mean, just like they have all over the rest of the country. It's ridiculous. That's right. All right. All right. Thanks again, Doctor. You're awesome. You know, thank you. Hang in there and just know that we are with you. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right. Take care.